Thirty-some years after the end of the Cold War, missiles remain a threat to the United States. And now space, where most crucial military communications occur, has also become a contested domain. For an update on how the military deals with these threats, I spoke with the deputy to the commander of the Army Space and Missile Defense Command at his office within Redstone Arsenal at Huntsville, Alabama. Richard DeFada is a retired Army colonel, now the senior civilian executive at SMDC. We started with where the command fits into the military org chart. Space Missile Defense Command is a very unique command. It's what's called an Army Service Component Command, which supports the major COCOMs, four-star level commands. So in our case, we support directly Strategic Command, now Space Command, you know, the recently stood up COCOM. And there's always confusion about Army versus Space Force. Space Force is a whole different service. Space Command is a command. And then we have responsibility to NORTHCOM, Northern Command, with our, with our missile defense capability. And then finally, the fourth four-star that we report to is the Chief of Staff of the Army, where we're the enterprise integrator for all air and missile defense. Our commander here is the senior air defender in the Army, air defense. It's the you know, counter-air, counter-UAVs, uh, things like that. Talk about missiles for a moment. The Army uses missiles to get bad people, but this is missile defense. So right. tell us more about the scope of what it is that you defend against, and how does that all work? Well, so there's two, again, some confusion about missile defense. There's the small missiles. You know, you see in the, in the current conflict we use stingers against uh, aircraft, other small missiles. Our primary role here is ground-based global missile defense. So uh, an ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile, uh, from a rogue nation like Iran or Iraq, uh, North Korea, we would protect the homeland. So our soldiers here in Space and Missile Defense Command actually man the global ballistic missile defense GMD site up in Alaska. So we provide protection. We, we like to say uh, 300 soldiers providing protection to 300 million in the United States from, uh, from rogue nation uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And what does the defense look like? What happens if such a rogue missile should be detected coming to the United States? So good question. Basically, we do surveillance around the world. You've heard of satellites that look at uh, infrared signatures. We have radars all around the world, early warning radars, forward base mode radars that we man here at SMDC, and they would they would be doing um, surveillance of missile attacks. Uh, those are all brought together, those kind of feeds. If there was an announcement of an attack or of a missile that potentially could have been attacking the United States, those feeds would be then brought into NORAD, uh, NORTHCOM, the MIDIOC, is a missile defense agency capability that integrates that. And then we'd be put on alert and be prepared uh, on order to you know, have a counter once we determined it was actually going to target the United States. And what is the status in history, let's say, of missile interception? I mean, is that part of this also? Here at Redstone Arsenal, of course, we've been doing missile defense for as long as we've had missile offense, right? So in the early 40s, we started here, set up all sorts of things that went all the way from nuclear warheads to now we do very precise hit-to-kill. So we're doing, you know, bullet-on-bullet kind of engagements, we're no longer nuclear warheads in, in space. It's, uh, it's really that capability. So we've been doing that uh, transformation, that development here at Redstone and other places for, uh, for many, many years. So that used to be derided, you know, a long time ago as Star Wars and this kind of thing. But missile interception physically then is something that is a regular capability now? 
It is. It is from the smaller missile, Patriot, against uh, an aircraft, against another missile. You know, the Desert Storm, the, the uh, SCUD level of targets were intercepted by Patriot missiles. We're just taking, scaling that up and take a missile that's, uh, that's launched from another country, comes through space into our area, potentially in the, in the continental United States, and then we launch a, a uh, ground-based interceptor that would then intercept that. And this command, does that launch, or you just give the information to someone? We, we do both. We, we maintain the radars, some of the radars that do some of that, uh, that early warning, and then we also man the site that actually uh, would be firing the, the counter-missile. And as missiles get faster and as other nations claim they have hypersonics, it's kind of hard to verify. Mm-hmm. What are the areas of research and development that you need to have here to keep up with emerging threats? A ballistic missile that we've talked about so far, that basically has a very simple trajectory. It goes up into space, comes back down on a trajectory that we can not only measure, but we can predict. When you talk about hypersonics, some things change. Uh, one is the speed. Uh, some of these uh, hypersonics, by definition, means it travels faster. Uh, and so you have to have better uh, ways to cue your your systems. They also have some some element of maneuverability. Instead of a, you know, a very predictable trajectory, they now have some capability to maneuver. And, and so they're not as predictable as a ballistic missile. So the technologies we now have to, to look to and the Missile Defense Agency that's responsible for developing those technologies right across our courtyard over here, uh, they look at uh, ways to detect launches. They look at ways to track missiles. Probably our most important uh, new technology is being able to track those super-fast hypersonics uh, and then finally look at different means to intercept. Sure, and then there's a couple of different possibilities with hypersonic enemy craft. One is sometimes it's just simply the speed of the projectile. There's no energetics in it, and so it's going to hit a thing, and that's the end of it, and whatever it hits, it wrecks. But then there's the possibility of having a warhead or an explosive on the hypersonic that's kind of two scenarios, is that right? It, it could be. I mean, if you're talking about just a ground intercept, something going that fast can have a very significant impact on the ground without having a warhead at all. We don't want that to happen, and so our systems are designed to intercept over somebody else's territory, or in space, or someplace that would be uh, benign effects on the ground. And so, what are your priorities? Looking at the world as it is, and you get orders from what doctrine changes, and, and you know, at some point. U.S. policy changes. How does that translate to your priorities, and what are you planning on? What do you what do you see ahead in the next, say, two three years? Well, again, this, a unique command to look at this because we have three elements of that. One is a technology development, a technical center that really looks at uh, you know baseline technology developments, science and technology research and development. What's the next, you know, uh, directed energy? You know, would a laser be a better way to intercept at the small missile levels or the large missile levels? You know, the Department of Defense has used airborne lasers in the past and demonstrated capabilities. Uh, And we have that center of excellence here that does directed energy work. We also take national priorities and all the way down to our commander's priorities, and we translate that in the Army to a requirement. So we have another whole section here called the Space and Missile Defense Center of Excellence, just like all the other Army centers of excellence for maneuver, aviation, and those kinds of things. And their job primarily is to do what we call capability development. So take the National Defense Strategy uh, uh, all the way down through the uh, many levels of, of uh, requirements and direction and prioritization, all the way down to our commander's priorities. And what pops out the other end is a, a requirement. In other words, for an Army tactical unit on the ground, 
what do we need to what do we need as a capability to fight from a ground war perspective and so that that be, that's it's called capability development so we generate requirements we pass those into the rest of the army the institutional part of the army and then we go after the solutions the solutions might be te- technology it might be techniques and procedures you know how do you avoid you may not have to fire uh you know, a, a hardcore missile to have an effect. You may just maneuver differently, or you may provide a different uh, source of, of of counter to some of those missiles. So we take the, the full range from national priorities down to uh, the Army's priorities and develop requirements, and then go off and build technologies that support those. And let's switch for a minute and talk about space, because the you have other components of the Defense Department that operate space assets for communications. Right. So is it fair to describe the Army as a consumer of space services, and therefore you depend on them, but you're not a provider of them? So tell us more about the space activities as part okay. of missile and space so defense command. The answer is both. Up until, uh, and in fact, not a very well-known fact, is until last Monday, all satellite operations, satellite control was performed by the Army. The Air Force would fly satellites, and the Army would fly the payloads. Mm-hmm. That's, we had a, a brigade called the Satellite Operations Brigade. And so if you're uh, an aircraft carrier going across the ocean, it's an Army soldier that's providing you with your, with your wideband bandwidth to be able to, to have communications. Uh, that's one of the elements that was moved over to Space Command mm-hmm. after uh, you know, uh, several years of discussions on where those go because it's strategic and joint. And so all of those capabilities across all the services were brought together at Space Command uh, in the Space Force. So the Navy had some capability, Army had some capability, uh, and then there's commercial and other uh, satellite operations. Uh, but as far as consuming, the Army is absolutely the biggest consumer and, and requirer for space capabilities. Everything that we do, all of our systems in general are either enabled by space or something that's, uh, that's, that's, that's used from space or require space uh, to, to be effective. So, all right. So both. And so we and, – and, and a last point is really we also provide some of those services now and capabilities that, to the joint force from a, a land force component. All right. So then let's get into the structure of this command. What types of people do you have? What are the skills you need? Tell us about the human capital component of it. Okay. Again, uh, we kind of divide it into three, three pieces. And I'll start with the, uh, you know, the pointy end of the spear. We have operational brigades. We do satellite operations. That's our first space brigade. We have uh, soldiers. and Those are all soldiers. We have soldiers from the National Guard that man our missile defense sites. Uh, we had the satellite operations soldiers, and then it's a it's a military command, so we have a variety of staff officers and other other sorts. Now that's the, again the pointy end of the spear, and that's really the purpose for having this command here is to provide them capability. Go to the far end of that, and the, the uh, technical center that we have here has scientists, you know, PhD. Uh, Research, you know, world-class researchers in the area of directed energy, missile defense, and those folks go everywhere from basic research. You know, what's the next best laser that we can develop? We're doing that research here. We develop satellite experiments. That dem- the Army doesn't fly satellites. That's done by Space Force, Space Command. What we do, though, is we fly experiments to inform Army requirements. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, if I'm a brigade commander, I want, to see, I want to see over that hill. To see over that hill, I need, you know, satellite imagery, and I need it right now. I mean, I need to push a button and say, now I want to see what's over that hill. So, so we, we would demonstrate that with a, a science and technology objective 
we'd actually fly a satellite that has that capability on it. We take the results of it, inform Army leadership, create a, a requirement, and then we'd pass that on to the Space Force or the Space Development Agency, and they would incorporate that into our future, our future capabilities. So the, the three pieces that we have here, institutional Army folks, uh, research and development, and then we've got soldiers that actually perform the pointy end of the, of the spear kind of work. So maybe summarize for us how this all comes together for battle operations as you envision it. Okay. Traditionally, Army provided some baseline capability in the space, the space domain land-based. It was all centrally located in one space brigade here at Space Missile Defense Command. Uh, Army space is undergoing uh, quite a transformation right now, whereas we're taking the majority of our space capabilities and giving it to that brigade commander we talked about earlier. In other words, theater-level Army space capabilities at the command of the COCOM. So the USER commander, the the PACOM commander, is able to to leverage ground-based capabilities. So we're moving from a central strategic-only capability to a non-centralized tactical capability that uh, lends itself to now the multi-domain operations that you probably have, have read about. Uh, uh, space as a as a independent domain uh, now providing capabilities for in the planning realm and the execution realm can be uh, kinetic can be non-kinetic can be lethal can be non-lethal a lot of tools in the in the quiver for a, an operational army commander does any of this relate up to the jadc2 DOD effort and the Army part of that? Uh, it, it does indirectly. I mean, uh, some of our command and control elements for our missile defense, for example, the, the, the C2BMC, that's the big missile defense command and control, and the Army's capability, the integrated battle command system, it's the smaller missile, IBCS. Those are elements that would be, would be a portion of the Department of Defense's JADC squared. So you control missiles from uh, from Stinger all the way up to the intercontinental ballistic missiles. Those are elements of what JADC squared uh, would do as they develop that at the Department of Defense level. And by the way, what's your own history? You were career Army, and now you're an SESer here. Just tell us a little bit about your own background. I was well. I was in the Army for about 28 years, primarily doing missile defense kind of activities. Retired from the Army in about 2005, worked in the uh, civilian sector for about eight or nine years, and then came back to Space and Missile Defense Command because of the, my super interest in directed energy, which is really what my uh, degrees and, and other things were to develop new technologies, uh, which have been around for many years, DE. And so that, I, I could not have not come back to the, the government or at least uh, tried to come back and do that. And I've been here for about the last 13 years and filled virtually positions in all of those elements I described to you, the technical center, the center of excellence, and now uh, the deputy to the commanding general. Now, I have a piece of steel in my studio that's about an eighth of an inch thick, and it has a big hole where the metal melted down. But that was a naval laser. Mm -hmm. Can the Army match that? We we matched it back in uh, about 1975. (laughs) Okay, that that laser uh, shot down a helicopter. Uh, I, I, I joke about it, but my father was the Army's directed energy program manager at the time. So I've got one of those on my wall also with a, ju- a bigger hole in it. <laughs> but yes. Uh, and, and, oh, and oh, by the way, from a technology standpoint, we all work together on the technology. So the same laser that, that worked for the Navy, where they are right now, also works for the Army. But now you gotta, you got to package it differently. you got a ship. you got lots of power. you got lots of space. Although the Navy will argue they don't have quite as much. But the Army's got to put it in a very small vehicle and then move it around the battlefield. And so you could have the exact same laser, 
but you have different beam control optics. You have different, uh, you know, means of, of moving it around. And finally, that last piece has to go on a, potentially on an aircraft, so it's got an even smaller form factor and size. Right. My understanding of directed energy is the physics, the science are understood. It's a matter of form factor and power needs in a small space is the primary challenge at this point. It is. We've gotten the technology to the point, and we're not stopping. We're going to continue to improve it. Uh, but the technology now says you can get enough power out of these lasers to have tactical effects. And now you've got to package it into a small Typically, in, in the old days, if you wanted twice as much power, you had to have twice as much size. And now you can actually you, you can, you, you, you can stack components to get additional power out of those things. And, and then, again, you can package those things in a ship, in a vehicle of some sort, or an aircraft, depending on where you want to be. And it is. It's all about physics. You want to be closer, you have a better effect. You know, the more power, can, you can reach out farther. It's not linear, as the scientists will tell you, but it's, it's kind of close. Rick DeFada is assistant to the commander of the Army's Space and Missile Defense Command. There's more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Tomorrow, we'll hear from the acting director of the command's technical center about its work on directed energy. Check out all of our coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com and subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank. What if I told you you could get cash back just for being yourself? The U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card lets you customize your rewards to maximize your cash back. Receive up to 5% cash back on the two reward categories that best fit your lifestyle and adjust your cash back selections each quarter as your spending changes. Learn more at usbank.com slash cash plus. Whether you're a movie buff or a gym rat, a foodie or a techie, a homebody or a jet setter, you can earn 5% cash back doing the things you love. Just be yourself and get rewarded. Plus, you'll get 2% cash back on one everyday category like gas stations, EV charging stations, groceries or restaurants. Apply now at usbank.com slash cash plus and discover how you can get a $200 cash back bonus. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.